Great. Thanks, Naomi. Well, keep that open in front of you because we're going to be uh, looking at that together. We are working our way through some of these Psalms of Ascent over the next few uh, weeks. And uh, next week is the start of our all-age uh, services. So this week is the last non-all-age. I don't know what that is. Anyway, there you go. So we're looking at this psalm this morning. And I want to start uh, with an experiment. I think I had written in my notes an experiment on you, but that gives the wrong impression. This is an experiment together, okay? So this is something we're going to do together. What I want to do is suggest to you a number of different places that we might go, and I want you to tell me whether that fills you with a prospect of joy or dread, okay? Joy or dread. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand for joy, if we're able, stand for joy and remain seated for dread, okay? And I'm going to run through these. You got it? Stand for joy, remain seated for dread. Don't leave me hanging out to dry here, okay? Ready? Uh, first one, what about going to the beach? Stand for joy, sit for dread. Ah, interesting, okay? Take a seat. Uh, what about this? Uh, let's go dancing. Interesting. Wow, there you go. Take a seat. What's amazing then is when one half of a couple stands up and another remains seated, isn't it? Must be fun in your house. Okay, uh, let's go climb a mountain. Okay. Okay, take a seat. Um, Ruth, have you stood up at all yet? Oh, you did. Sorry, I was just trying to find where you found anything. Okay. Uh, school. Stand for joy. <laughs> sit for dread. Yes, well done. Okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's not cool to love school, is it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, what about sitting on your own and reading a book? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Uh, what about going shopping? Okay. Take a seat. Okay, final one. Final one. Um, what about going to church? Okay, you can take a seat. You can take a seat. Um, I suppose that last one is a little bit unfair, but the reason for asking that is because that is where Psalm 122 starts. Have a look. The psalmist is, is told that he's going to the house of the Lord. And he literally cannot wait to get there. Let's go, not to the beach, not to school, not out shopping, but let's go to the house of the Lord, he says. Now, I grant you that house of the Lord means the temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean our humble little hall here in Egberth. And we'll see, too, that house of the Lord language is ultimately fulfilled in meeting the person of the Lord Jesus in the heavenly Jerusalem. But I think we'll notice on the way through the psalm, the psalmist knows that he's not yet in the perfect heavenly Jerusalem. It's still a kind of now and not yet type thing. He's praying for it in the end. 
And in the meantime, where do you go to taste the glories of future heaven? Well, he says, in the gatherings of God's people, in God's place, under his rule. You know, with your feet, he says, standing at the gates of Jerusalem. So really the psalm starts with this, I'm glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Really, for us, is gladness that we should experience in gathering together on a Sunday morning as a church family. This gathering should make us glad. Why? Well, because this side of eternity, the gathering of God's people is where we should experience the most intensely the joys of the gospel and the solid hope of eternal peace. Now, I think there might be some work to do to persuade us of that. So let's work our way through the psalm. I've got three different aspects or marks or characteristics of the heavenly uh, Jerusalem which are seen in the gatherings of God's people. So let's work through it and see those together. The first one is this. Uh, He's glad to go to Jerusalem because it's a place of unity. Unity. Uh, It's a specific kind of unity as well. We were seeing this together in family Sunday school. It's unity in thankful obedience to God's word. Uh, Take a look at verse 3, and you'll notice this. It's a city that is bound firmly together, is how he puts it. I think this is a reference to the walls of Jerusalem, probably, that surround it, that the city is is tied together. It's a complete unit. But it's also a simile, isn't it? It, The the tied togetherness of the wall is similar to the tied togetherness of the people who are gathering for the feast. So inside the walls of this gathered-together city are the tribes of the Lord, verse 4. The tribes of the Lord go up, the tribes of the Lord. Here's a group of people who are tight with one another, just like the city is tightly bound by its wall. You also get to see the reason that they're there, because again in verse 4, gathering together there has been decreed for Israel. In other words, this is what God told them to do. So You've got a gathering together in a city that's done in submission to God's word to them. Go and gather, he says. God calls them together by his word, and they submit to that word and do what God has told them to do. And it's not a dry duty, is it? It's not a formality. It's not a, oh, we've got to go to Jerusalem because that's what God says we've got to do. No, it's not that at all, is it? It's a a thanksgiving service, too. Look at the end of verse 4. They give thanks to the name of the Lord. How amazing to be gathered together as God's people in this together city listening to the call of God. God has called us to be here and to gather together in his name in thanksgiving. See, that's the image, isn't it? The psalmist is anticipating being in Jerusalem. He's like, I can't imagine being anywhere better. I love to have my feet inside the gates of Jerusalem, he says, because it's a place of unity where people obey God's word and join their voices together in thanksgiving to God. Let me just try and give you a sense of what's going on here. I know some of you are leaving home to go to university this uh, next academic year to some far-flung part of the country, exam results uh, providing or whatever. Anyway, so at some point this term, and I reckon it will probably come around October, maybe sooner, that the novelty of cooking for yourself will have worn off. The nights will be drawing in, the weather will be getting colder, and you'll be looking around at your messy flat with all the undone washing up and your flatmate's shoes just in the middle of the corridor, the terrible smell in the fridge, which you're not sure what it is, and you'll think, I can't wait, I can't wait to go home. Yeah? Well, I'm kind of hoping that my daughters will think that. You know, you'll be thinking, I just can't wait to go home because at home, everything is in order and organized. 
Everything is put away and tidied up. And that's the sense, isn't it, in Psalm 122. I can't wait to leave the chaos behind and come to the gathered city of Jerusalem, a place of unity which is firmly bound together. You know, we've been working through these, haven't we? And it's, it's a place where there's none of the fighting of Psalm 120, none of the backbiting or the slander, none of the harsh words or cruelty. The call for help in Psalm 121 has been heard and arrived. God's people are here together under his word, giving thanks to him for all that he's done. Now, that's how the New Testament talks about local churches. Not by the security of a city wall, but gathered together by the word of God, called by God to gather together as his people in thankfulness to him. The picture the Bible often uses is the picture of a body. So in your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and let me just show you this really briefly. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, if you're looking for it. Ephesians chapter 4, it's on page 977 in the church Bibles. Ephesians 4, verse 1. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, there are similar ideas, aren't there, here? One united body sharing bonds of peace, walking together in obedience to God's word, submitting to what he has said, called together by him and his word. Now, you might be thinking as you listen to that, you say, well, wait a minute, church doesn't always feel like that. Unity is maybe not always the word that you would use to describe church life. You know, people in church, they can disagree with one another, sometimes in really disagreeable ways. And that's certainly true. But, but look again at what's going on here. The unity of the church in Ephesus is not made by the people, is it? Instead, like the unity of the city of Jerusalem is given in its walls, so the unity of the church is given in all those ones that are put together. You know, one spirit one Lord, one faith, making one body. In other words, the unity of the church is not so much just a feeling that you have as much as a reality that's given to us by God, something that he's doing in the church. So he says it's unity that we maintain, not that we create. Let me try and illustrate what I mean. Think about unity in church like water going down a plug hole. I realize that's Makes it sound derogatory, doesn't it? But imagine water going down a plug hole. The water is in one sense in unity, isn't it? As it goes down the plug hole. Why does it all go down together down the plug hole? Well, because it's been drawn together, isn't it? By the, the unstoppable force of gravity pulling it down towards the drain. Maybe a little turbulence on the top, but actually it's being pulled together. And that's unity in the life of the church, isn't it? Too. It is given to us as we are drawn by the Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our unity. So much so that unity in Ephesians 4 is not constructed, but maintained. How? Well, by focusing on the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. Even and maybe especially when we're struggling. We're brothers and sisters together in Christ, aren't we? Drawn into him as the church gives thanks for what God has done to us and sits together under his word. 
Now, this kind of unity is delightful, isn't it? We should be glad to be here and express it because it's unlike unity that we experience anywhere else. You know, imagine a place where people whom you've had difficult conversations with or you've disagreed with, who you maybe find difficult and are from different backgrounds, imagine something strong enough to hold those kind of people together, a city strong enough to bring people together. Can you think of such a place? Can you think of a unifying force so strong that it will draw people in from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds, all sorts of different ways of thinking, all sorts of different political opinions? Can you imagine a force that strong, a city that secure? Well, yes, that's exactly what we find in the gospel, isn't it? In the work of the Lord Jesus. It means, doesn't it, that the way that we ruin church unity is to sideline or ignore or flat out disobey God's word or his decrees. We see that, don't we, plenty of times. If you push God's calling in the gospel to one side, you will split the church. We see it too, don't we, in being refusing to be thankful and instead just grumbling and complaining, and we're all tempted to do that. But if we'll fight those temptations of the devil, then our church can be a place where all sorts of different people can find a bond of unity in Christ based on what he has done for them in the power of the gospel. So unity is the first thing. Second reason the psalmist is glad to be there is because the city is focused, focused on the righteous throne of the king. You get that in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. As the psalmist thinks on what Jerusalem is like, it's not just all the tribes going up together to a firmly bound city, but that when they get there, they find that the judgment thrones of the house of David are right in the center of the city. The city is a center of justice and rightness, a place where the wrongs are put right by the judgment of the king. Now, again, hopefully you can see there's no wonder is that the psalmist is really happy to go to this place. The city and the justice is, is compared to the wildness that he's been experiencing in, in Psalm 120, where you know, false accusations and lying provocation have been the order of the day as he's been excluded from Jerusalem. But now he experiences justice and rightness from the king. I don't know whether you've experienced this at school, but when I was, I think, in year eight at school, we had one of those lunch breaks where it's raining and so you have to stay in your classroom. I don't, do you still do that? Is that what it happens if it rains? You have to stay in your classroom, and it went wild because there was no teacher supervising us. You know, kids were standing on the tables. They were fighting. Probably some were smoking. I can't remember. Richard, who is now actually in prison, broke the overhead projector, which is a thing that you used to use to project pictures onto the wall. Anyway, I'm there, as you can imagine, with another group of slightly geeky kids sitting down, just willing a teacher to walk into the classroom to stop the chaos, because it's utter carnage, isn't it, with everybody doing whatever they want. And that's, I think, the sense of the longing here. In the chaos and the carnage of the world, he longs to be in Jerusalem, which is centered around the judgment throne of the king, where rightness is the order of the day. Justice reigns. Now, in a sense, that's also to be our experience of the gathering of the church. At the center of our church life is not the judgment seat of a human king, but the throne of King Jesus. A throne where punishment is laid down for wrongdoing. But there's a big difference, isn't there? Because the truth is the judgment of King David's house could only ever punish. It had no power to really transform. But the throne at the center of church life is different because it's not a golden seat at the top of a set of stairs, but it's a wooden cross on top of a hill. It's King Jesus the king of righteousness, lays down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. 
So that the center of church life is the transforming justice of Christ. Justice that doesn't just punish and destroy sin, but brings new life and forgiveness to those who will trust in Christ. Again, in your Bibles, turn to Titus 2. Titus 2. The good thing with turning to lots of different places in your Bible on a hot day is you can fan yourself with the pages. Turn to Titus chapter 2. It is on page 998 in the church Bibles, Titus chapter 2. This is how Paul puts it to Titus working with the church in Crete. He says this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Have a look at that. Here is the grace of God. Where has the grace of God appeared? Well, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, enthroned as he is on the wooden cross. And now that grace transforms. It doesn't just save, but transforms as Christ's cross teaches us to renounce ungodliness, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And the point of Psalm 122 is, wouldn't you long to be in a place where that kind of transforming work is alive and well? Imagine belonging to a company of people where everybody is progressively getting more and more like Jesus. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? Not because they are pulling up their socks and working super hard at it, but because God by his spirit is at work in them that as they hear the gospel of grace, they are transformed to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live lives for his praise and glory. It's amazing, isn't it? If you, if you have a, a city together and the center of that city is human endeavor, not the cross of the Lord Jesus, you have a company of pride, don't you? Where everyone thinks they're slightly better than each other. Or if you have a, a, a church that's gathered together and there's, there's no teaching of the gospel and its implications for our lives. You, you have a company of anarchy where people can just do whatever they like to do. But instead, what you've got in the church is a community of costly forgiveness purchased on the cross, which is transforming each and every member to grow into his likeness. Come back to Psalm 122. Let's look at the third and final one. It's a community of longing, longing longing together for the heavenly Jerusalem. I think there's a slight enigma in these last verses, in verses 6 to 9, because if Jerusalem is as good as verses 3 to 5 to suggest, then why does verse 6 tell them to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Why, is they, why are they wishing for security if the city is already perfect? And here I think you get the tension of the psalm, because as good as Jerusalem is as a place, as, a longing, uh, as the psalmist longs to be there, Still, he knows that it's not quite yet the final heavenly Jerusalem. It's not the ultimate location of all the promises of God. It's still got its problems. Disunity still lurks in the unity. Thanklessness crops up in the services of thanksgiving. Disobedience lives alongside the obedience. And so the psalm ends by telling the singers to pray. Pray that Jerusalem would be peaceful, to do good for Jerusalem, to work together as brothers and companions for that peace in verse 8. Now, I think that reflects something that's really important at the heart of Christian life, isn't it? That it's a, it's a now and a not yet. We have together, don't we, the work of Christ on the cross, 
forgiveness in him, but we're not yet in the heavenly Jerusalem that we're still longing for. We're still longing for a city of perfect peace and joy that is still as yet beyond our experience. So we pray, don't we? Not for the peace of the city of Jerusalem, but for the peace of the church now. And we ask that the Lord might secure those who love him, that he might keep one another persevering. And we do good, don't we, for Jerusalem, for the church. And we long together for that final Jerusalem when our feet will finally be in the glorious grounds of eternal glory, when the unity that we taste now will be fully ours. Our obedience will not be half-hearted and lukewarm, but zealous and heartfelt. When the throne of the king is not a kind of historical reality that we look back on, but a, a present experience as we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. And Psalm 122 says, I know you long to be here, but don't you long to be there, don't you? I said last week that the application of a psalm is always to sing it. These psalms are asking to be the anthems of our Christian lives. They want us to reflect on all the different emotional experiences that we have and to, to take up these words and to, to sing them, that we might be taught to long and to treasure for church life and eternal glory. So we're going to end by reading the psalm aloud together as we do that, and then I'll briefly pause and then pray. So let's read Psalm 122 aloud together. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, let's have a brief pause as you can think and reflect on that and then I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for our church and our church life. We thank you for the little taste of unity in the Lord Jesus that we get here. We thank you for the transforming power of the gospel at work within us. We thank you for that kind of corporate longing that all that we have experienced now in the Lord Jesus might be fully ours. And Lord, yet as we see those brilliant things about church life, we recognize that we are way short of where we want to be. So we pray for the peace of our church. We pray for the security of our church, for those who love you here. We pray that you might keep us persevering and living for you. We pray, please, that you would help us to work hard for the sake of our church family, that we would work hard to do it good. And we pray and ask that we would do those things for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy, because we know that there's a gladness in this psalm, which sometimes escapes us, but we really long for, that there would be a real sense of gladness in our hearts when we think about our church and when we gather together. So we pray that you might do that in us and through us 
and for the sake of your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.